Uh, Father, we thank you again for the opportunity that uh, we have this morning. Just to open up your word and to be reminded, uh, and some of us uh, in, in new ways, things that we haven't heard uh, before, uh, but to be reminded of that which uh, we are able to stand upon. We are able to know that this is true, that this is the very word of God, and therefore it is authoritative in our lives. It is what we need. Uh, daily, uh, even though it it may and will be at times not be what we desire to hear because our hearts go after something else. But we know, uh, Lord, what a what a wonderful promise that we have that for those who love you, those who are called according to your purpose, uh, that uh, you are working all things together for good and you provide us with that which is good. And uh, so we thank you for this word. Help us, uh, Lord, to know the importance of this. Uh, help our hearts to be drawn to it uh, as food for our lives, spiritual food, and help us to live our lives according to it more and more. Uh, we do pray for your, your help and your strength. Uh, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, okay. 1.8. It's a little bit lengthy, but I didn't feel the need to kind of break it out as I've done with some of them and, and diagram it on the page because I think it's... Uh, it's a little more straightforward than that. So, 1.8. See if there's somebody that wants to to read that for us. Okay, wonderful. Thank you, Edie. which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence, kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentical, so as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal unto them. But because these original tongues are not known to all the people of God who have right unto and interest in the scriptures and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them, therefore they are to be translated into the vulgar language of every nation unto which they come that the word of God dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him in an acceptable manner and through patience and comfort of the scriptures may have Thank you, Edie. And, and aren't those, the, the last words there, wonderful. And uh, we'll, we'll go back in just a moment uh, to the beginning of this. But you know, kind of the, the purpose so that the Word of God, dwelling plentifully in all. Interesting phrase uh, to think of God's Word dwelling plentifully in us. Uh, but you think back over the history of the church and during so many, uh, in so many places and during so many time periods, it couldn't dwell plentifully in others because they were kept from it. Uh, and therefore the need, of course, for the Re- uh, Reformation 
but dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him in an acceptable manner and through patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. You know, do you think about uh, what we need so much? If there's anything that we need in our day and age, uh, and of course it's been true throughout uh, the history of the church, but it is hope. And uh, therefore, this is the word that gives us great hope. So, uh, looking back, question for some of the kids that are here. Um, what are the original languages of the Bible? Hebrew and Greek. Hebrew and Greek, thank you. So, Old Testament, which one? Mainly. Almost entirely. So, what? Hebrew, thank you. And then New Testament, almost entirely Greek. Uh, and just right there, we're, we're given a reminder. So uh, that's what the Lord ordained that uh, his word should be brought to us. And he could have uh, determined that, no, it's, it's going to, as it was uh, early on, uh, it's going to be passed down by word of mouth. Uh, he could have ordained that. But what's the problem? Yeah, Jim. Just a, just a sidebar, I think there's... A little bit of Aramaic there too. That's, yeah, I, that's, why I said, <laughs> that's why I said almost entirely. So in the Old Testament, there is Aramaic, and Aramaic was the kind of common language, spoken language of, uh, of the Jews uh, through, through the years of, of the Bible. And so we do see, uh, I think it's um, Esther was in Daniel. Aramaic. Daniel. What? Daniel. Thank you. Thank no, you. Esther. Yeah, and, and Esther. Okay. And a couple of parts. Right, right. And which, by the way, is very similar to Hebrew. So it's of the same derivation and everything. But, uh, but primarily, when we think of it, uh, Old Testament Hebrew, New Testament Greek, uh, and uh, the Lord ordained that the Bible would be set down in these languages. And so let, let me just ask just a practical question. Uh, if we hear someone say that, um, that this particular translation of the Bible, uh, it, that it... It's it's the one that we must use, and it happens to be in English. What's kind of the problem with that? Not everybody speaks or reads English. Okay, well that's that's part of the problem. That's exactly right. Not everybody speaks or reads English, and it was originally given what? Not the original. That's yeah. It's not the original language. It's not what God gave, and we don't we don't therefore come a number of years later and say, well, God inspired. In Greek and Hebrew, and we'll talk about that that word in a second. But now he has taken that and he has inspired again in the English language. And so, and and the main one that we see that with is uh, King James. Uh, and I'll just say, uh, so it's King James only. So when you hear that King James only, that's the issue. Uh, I, you know, I, I'll personally say I use the King James often in my in my studies and with comparisons. And many people use it and, uh, and, and love the King James. And it's, it has, in an amazing way, I believe, you know, over the years, been, uh, been used by the church. And, and in the time in which it was given and everything else, amazing accuracy there as well. But uh, it's not the only English version. And there are, you know, for some, there are some issues with using it. Uh, in that uh, if you don't spend a lot of time in it uh, and get very used to you know, how to understand things, then it can be problematic. At the same time, there, there are some, some real pluses 
to using the King James Version as well. But, uh, but I, you know, just a point there that the original languages, that's what we look back to. Now, let me, uh, so it, uh, chapter 8, ta- or I'm sorry, paragraph 8 talks about the Old Testament in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence, kept pure in all, all ages. And then it says, and, and therefore uh, are authentical uh, and so as to handle all controversies of religion and on and on. Um, so what about that word inspiration? Uh, somebody want to take a shot at like a, giving a, a, just a, a, a general wordy or not wordy definition for inspiration of Scripture? Um, what? Okay, <laughs> it's actually a very good one from Second uh, Timothy three sixteen, which used uses the word uh, you know God breathed uh, that God breathed out Scripture and, and that that really is the, the the sense in which the word is used. Anybody else want to based on and, that? And God is the primary author. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that, and that's that's exactly right. And so there were particular people that he ordained that would uh, would take the word and and provide it in written form. Now, initially, uh, a lot of the word Old Testament was in, uh, given by the prophets and and through dreams and other means. Uh, but then he ordained that it would be written down. Now, there are a couple of different ways. I'm not going to get into this, but uh, when you think about inspiration, what it could be is that uh, if Jim were to dictate to me uh, something that he desires written down, uh, then I would write that down kind of the best I I could and follow word by word exactly what he said. That's what we might call mechanical dictation, uh, where it's just, it's it's exactly, you hear the words, you write them down. that's not what most believe that the Lord did. In fact, it's pretty plain and clear what, what the Lord did was that He used uh, people's personalities and He used their background experiences and all of that, but ordained that, that the Word would be set down exactly the way that He determined, word for word in, in a very real sense. And so when we go to the Greek and we go to the, the Hebrew, it's the very words themselves that we believe are inspired. And that's important uh, because otherwise, if it's just the phrases uh, or the general ideas even, that's going to change completely the character of how we look at Scripture. Uh, and, and yet what we, what we see is that in the very words themselves, God has, has given us what we were to, uh, to receive. Now, does that mean that this is an ESV Bible, uh, you've got a King James, I'm sure somebody here has New American Standard, that when we pick up our translation of the Bible, that this has the exact words all the way through, every word for word that God intended. Is that what it means? No. Thank you. No. <laughs> Why? Well, for one, um, you know, we were talking about the word love. Okay. In right. English, we have basically one word for love. Okay. In Greek, there are three or four words for love. Right. So right. we can't capture the original meaning exactly when we translate, you know, for every word. That's exactly right. And that's true with any language, right? Yeah. Anytime there's a translation, there's going to be something lost. 
Therefore, on that basis, we should all learn Greek and Hebrew, shouldn't we? <laughs> next, next class. <laughs> that's right. That's next class. Yeah. So, you know, in a in a sense, yet. You know the way the Lord has has provided, and actually uh, this this paragraph uh, eight I think states it very well that we can know everything that we need to know, and and, and with great accuracy and great detail in the common language of the people. What's called here the vulgar language doesn't mean vulgar in the way that we often. It just means the common language, the language that's that's commonly spoken. Uh, and uh, in fact, what what happens when let's say when the church requires a particular language, whether it's Greek and Hebrew or another language that's not spoken by the the people, what happens then? That's very good. That's right. So those who know that language become the authority, and if those who know that language are only those who are kind of professionals and perhaps those who want for some reason to wield power, then what happens to God's Word and what happens to the people? It's that's exactly right. And the people are starved for God's Word. And that's what was happening in the Reformation. And so a lot of this paragraph is really, it's, it's a... a, a a clarification or a pushback against what happened before the Reformation. Latin was the language. Uh, and so we had the Latin Vulgate. Uh, and the only people who knew it really were the priests. And uh, so the people were starved and they were controlled uh, because that's, that is what happens with sinful people. And uh, so it says here, but because these original languages are not understood by all the people of God who have a right to and a vital interest in the scriptures and are commanded to read and search them in the fear of God. Therefore, the scriptures are to be translated into the common language of every nation to which they come. Uh, and therefore, no, English doesn't, you know, some in particular English translation doesn't trump other English translations, but also, you know, there, we have a need for every language uh, to have this uh, the, the word provided in those languages as well. And so, um, you know, I, I, again, this is a, a pushback against the uh, the Roman Catholic Church and the misuses that were happening uh, at that at that time. Um, yeah, I, things I'm not going to go into here a great deal, but. Uh, we also hold God's word to be infallible and inerrant in those original manuscripts. So in the Greek and in the Hebrew and the way that they were originally written, uh, that, that they weren't full of errors. In fact, they were without error in the original writing. So you think back to Paul. Uh, name, name a couple of uh, letters that Paul wrote. Philemon, thank you. It's not the one of the ones I would have expected, but that's good. That was a short one, right? That's one of the reasons, yeah. Uh, a personal letter, right? Um, so Philemon, uh, and name name another couple. Romans. Thank you, Romans. What? Galatians, is that here? 
Yes. And so all those those letters, when when uh, when Paul wrote them without error, and they were true. That's the other part. Uh, so inerrancy and infallible. They they were true. It was God's word. It was exactly what He desired to have uh, to have set down. Now. Why would we believe this? Why would we believe that through the centuries uh, that the original was uh, w- was given inerrant and uh, so without error and uh, infallible, and that it has been maintained through all the centuries? Why might we? I mean, just common sense. Just think it through. Who's providing it to us? God. That's right. Uh, and therefore, why? <laughs> Yeah, and is he able? Is he able to preserve it for us? Do you think, based on what we know, that he would preserve it for us? And the answer is yes. Now we can we can trace back. We have many many copies of uh, the the New Testament manuscripts, uh, the Old Testament as well. Not as many, but we can trace back. And and I think I've mentioned this before. There is a, a science that's called textual criticism, uh, where these are taken. You can go online now and see a lot of those manuscripts. Uh, in great detail and, uh, and and see how they're compared and contrast with, with the goal. And this is the singular goal, even though we know this is, is true, but in, in essence to provide the evidence and to trace back to the original manuscripts, which we don't have. And so we don't have, uh, you know, uh, John's Gospel that John originally wrote. We don't have his, but we have from very early times a number of manuscripts or copies of John's Gospel, and so we can trace back to it. And there are techniques that, that can be used to uh, to 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 see uh, that you know these are the original. Uh, question: Were there errors made as people copied those manuscripts? Uh, you know, one manuscript copied it twenty times, hundred times. The answer is yes. Uh, you try. But far less than when people copy other literature. That's exactly right. Far, because, because they were very meticulous when they made the copies. And, uh, and yes, it's true. If you, if you try you know, making 100 copies of something, what are you going to do? There are certain things you're going to do. You're going to copy a line twice, right? Uh, there are some where you're going to transpose maybe a, a couple of words or a couple of letters. But then if you compare to a number of other manuscripts, you can see where those errors are. And, and as it turns out, uh, there, is, there is nothing uh, all the way through God's Word. No doctrine that we have uh, that is hampered by errors, that, uh, you know, copy errors and things like that that have been found. So we're not getting in, into detail. But. but there are two things I wanted to say. The first one yeah. is, um, from what I read, Study this mm-hmm. early on, a little bit, just yeah. a tiny little bit. Um, you know, they were co- copies of the original, so there were like maybe twenty people who copied from the original. Okay. That were able to be compared, so that it wasn't like copies of copies of copies of copies. Right, so, right, right. And so we we do want to go as early as yes, possible. Right. With the manuscripts and date them and, and understand what, what time. But I have something that's really important. God's providence is sure. very evident in this. His intention, his original message has been kept pure. Maybe the yes. words are a little changed, but God's message 
to us. That's right. He has maintained, and I think that's the most important part. And what we can do is go back to chapter 5 of, in fact, you can, you can look at it just real briefly here. Uh, chapter 5 of the, or I'm sorry, uh, paragraph 5, I'm always going to get these mixed up, but paragraph 5 of, of, of this section that we're in where it says we can be moved and induced by the testimony of the church. And, and then it talks about the, uh, the evidences, and you can go back to those, and you can, you can see as you walk through those, and it's very true, that as you spend time in, in the Word, there's a sense in which any disciple of Christ that spent time in the Word is able to say, yes, thank you. That, you know, that's wonderful. It's great that there's textual criticism there. It's great that we have the early manuscripts. That's wonderful. It's helpful. But I don't need it. Because I know this is God's Word. And ultimately, that's what we come down to, right? Isn't it? That in our, in our hearts, as you, walk, as you work through, that if you know the Lord, and therefore... You know, in uh, chapter 10 of uh, John's Gospel, uh, Jesus says, My sheep know my voice. They hear my voice. And just like a, a flock of sheep, they, they go to that. And therefore, what, what should we expect? We should expect to know his voice uh, as we go through. And so, uh, if you've got doubts, and, and, and you know, we do have books, by the way, on uh, Edie said she'd done some research on this, and we've got some actually one wonderful book that kind of walks through Old Testament, how it's different than the New Testament, and how we you know look at the the uh, uh, the manuscripts and how the canon was put together and all of that. Uh, we've got that there, uh, and so some may desire that, and you know come see me or um, or Claire. I think she probably knows uh, what those books are, but um, but uh, just keep in mind that th- this is wonderful to have. But not, not necessary ultimately when we do know know his voice. Um, so I, just I, I do want to uh, make a point about the importance of the original manuscripts. That when we when you're talking to someone and you're talking about uh, the authority of God's word, they they bring up questions about uh, you know th- there are statements that have been made. If you know about Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman, I think that's how you say his name, but he, uh, there are others like that, and he, he himself, who was a scholar, uh, and originally said he was a believer, an evangelical uh, believer, but excellent scholar, and has done a lot of work with this, but then he, he came out later, uh, it was clear, he, he didn't have a, a foundation of belief, uh, ever, uh, and yet, you know, he's made statements like they're more... I don't know, more errors on a page of Scripture than, you know, whatever. And, and he's talking about, if you look at the original manuscripts and you've got 30 of them on a certain area in Scripture, you can find a number of, of these copy errors and things like that that are there. But it's, it's clear what he also will say. It's clear what the original manuscripts said. And he'll say that, but he'll throw the other things as other people will out there uh, just kind of as, as fodder <laughs> to tear down. Um, but uh, I, I do want to make the point that the original manuscripts, that's what we look back to. We do recognize, you'll find in, if you got the ESV or whatever version, that as you go through, if you turn to uh, John chapter 8 and you see brackets around the first section of John chapter 8, uh, you'll see, well, this, this part uh, wasn't in the earliest manuscripts. And that's important to know. There are a couple of spots like that. 
that we need to, to know and, and, uh, and turn to. Uh, but uh, it's the original manuscripts that we look back to and that we uh, believe are authentical in their entirety. Um, yes. Yes. The other thought I had was, despite the errors, it maintains this perfect unity. That's so exactly. It's, there's not a contradiction of what it's teaching. That's right, and that's one of the one of the evidences that it lists in uh, in paragraph five, the unity of it all the way through it. And the more and more that you go through, and in fact, that's going to lead into our next uh, the next section there. Um, the more and more you, you you go through, the more you recognize and that. That this is all, it, it does have one message. And as I read in this one place, as I read uh, this statement or this truth, that I can go to 20 other places and it's saying the exact same thing in, in different ways, uh, but in ways that were needed and are needed by different people, were needed uh, by different people of, of God. Um, and that gets into, yeah, thank you, the, the rule of interpretation. <laughs> Uh, which is much shorter uh, as far as the paragraph goes. And uh, you can also mark down, if you, it, it, this is also called the analogy of faith. Uh, it was the reformers uh, used that term for it. Uh, uh, but it's, it's really speaking about what Amy just brought up, <laughs> about the unity of Scripture and, and how all the way across Scripture we've got the same message. Therefore, how can we use that when it comes to interpreting Scripture, especially interpreting difficult passages? I'll throw that out there. Could you ask that again? What? Could you ask that Okay, again? sure, sure. So uh, if, as we recognize, we go through God's Word, if we recognize more and more that this is, it's all got the same message, it's all going to the same place, uh, ultimately it's pointing to the Lord Jesus as as the one that we need in order to set us right with God, uh, and uh, so all the way through, it's saying the same thing. I can turn to to First Kings chapter twenty that I just turned to, and I can find truths that are reflected here, even in the New Testament, and quotes that uh, places where it quotes. Uh, back in, in that place in the Old Testament. And, and so we can see it's all one together. So the question was, getting to the question, uh, so how do we use that fact in helping us to understand and interpret Scripture in the right way? How do we use that fact uh, before we read the paragraph? Evie demonstrated in the latest Bible study it's the whole of Scripture. And it doesn't contradict itself. It's the means of grace through the whole thing. That's right. And there's even a, a study now that Tim Keller did that was the gospel in every book of the Bible. Mm-hmm. So, therefore, it is the entire scripture, old and new. We're not, like, picking out one little portion of scripture and saying, well, this is it right here. Yeah, yeah. It's everything in its context. context. Yes. So it proves itself from beginning to end. And if you don't have the beginning, you're not going to understand the ending. That's right. That's right. And so it's all one, all pointing in the same place. Like you said, uh, we can find the gospel all the way through every, not just every book, on every page. 
If, if you, if you, you know, know and, and understand what the gospel is, what that page is really talking about, you, you'll find it reflected. Uh, there's a study by Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, that is a wonderful book. Many here have done it uh, called The Gospel in Genesis. Uh, and one of the most clear statements of the gospel all the way through, and yet he, he goes through the first uh, 12, I think 12 to 15 uh, uh, chapters of the Bible out of Genesis, and it's all the gospel <laughs> through and through, and so you know in the same same way. Uh, so back to that that question of how we can interpret, how we can use this knowledge in order to interpret Scripture. I mean, it kind of falls out, doesn't it? Right. Uh, that got uh, all the way through. Well, let's let's read the read the paragraph. It's paragraph nine again, pretty short. And Nathan, you want to read paragraph nine? The infallible rule of interpretation of scripture is the scripture itself, and therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, which is not manifold but one. It must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. Okay. Uh, how do we interpret Scripture? <clears throat> what Scripture? <laughs> and, and, you know, that sounds simple. Sounds kind of redundant. <laughs> but I tell you, that, that, that really is powerful. Uh, I, I, I'll, you know, my own testimony, the number one thing I probably spend more time uh, doing than anything else uh, when I'm preparing for a sermon. Is taking a passage, uh, especially if it's a longer passage because it takes more time. But uh, taking a passage and uh, and going through the Bible, going through God's Word, and understanding that passage out of God's Word before I ever look at a commentary or anything else. Uh, but just reading through it again and again, uh, using and you'll notice. Uh, I've got a little graphic there. It's in the beginning, God created. So this is obviously from. Uh, Genesis 1.1, uh, it has the question on it, what are these? Any of the kids here know what those are called that in that red circle there? Want to take a shot? What does it look like? Cross-references. That's actually the word I was looking for, so that's not taking a shot. No, it's good. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. So these, are, yeah, they're cross references. Uh, and so, uh, what is what is doing? And and I don't know if, and I'll be honest, if if the Bible that you normally read uh, doesn't have those, I'd recommend getting another copy. And this is just a, a Bible; it's not a study Bible. It doesn't have notes at the bottom or anything else. It's my preaching Bible, but and the one I use for. A lot of stuff, but uh, it's it's got those. And so, you know, what you can do, you're just reading through a passage, uh, and you have a question, or even it may be quoting something, or maybe it's not. You just, what does that mean? Look it up. You know, I'm I'm in Isaiah 5:25, uh, and it says uh, the little letter G uh, points to uh, you know a spot in that verse. It says Second Kings 22:13. It says also, Jeremiah 4.24. And then in brackets, Psalm 97.5, Habakkuk 3.6. I mean, all this is a wealth. <laughs> and so what you do is you go to those other places 
And as you learn Scripture more and more, you'll, you, you'll understand more and more the context. The context is important as you go to those places. But you can, you can understand what it's saying, uh, uh, what the passage that you're looking at is saying. Jim. Uh, and I think also that when you study the Bible, if you can to practice this study of homiletics. Mm-hmm. What is homiletics? It's, it's narrowing down to maybe 10 words or less exactly what is the Bible, Bible teaching mm-hmm. in this chapter or, or in this passage. Yeah. To narrow it down into 10 simple words, what it is that God is teaching you here. Right? Absolutely right. And so as we read or as we hear the word read, uh, you know, we can all let our minds drift. We can kind of, yeah, they kind of generally know. But no, every every word is important. And the Lord has has given it to us in such a way that it's intended for us to understand specifically what's being said. That's that, that's what you're getting at, that to, to narrow down, to understand specifically what is being said here because that's what's important. Uh, that's what we can use as, as food for our souls. That's what we can apply to other places in the Scripture and therefore live our lives uh, uh, by it, be encouraged by it. Day after day, we become discouraged by different things uh, and, and therefore apply it to our own lives and, uh, and have hope. <laughs> you know, we read at the end of uh, paragraph 8 you know, so clearly. So again, I, I'm just encouraging us to use the, the most basic tool that's there. The number one rule for interpretation of Scripture is Scripture itself. Uh, that's important. Yeah. I say just, uh, I mean, two of the things that we talked about, about the importance of context and then also understanding the more, uh, you know, more difficult to understand passages in light of the ones that are clearer. Um, I think both of those are alarm bells with a lot of the false teaching that we have. Uh, when when you notice that people are jumping from from uh, verse to verse to verse, and then you notice, uh, and then but then you read the paragraph and you see that they're they're taking that scripture way out of context. That's a big alarm bell. And also, um, people who try to prove these new doctrines or you know these heretical doctrines uh, from from passages where you say, huh, you know, I, I never would have guessed that that passage could even possibly be saying that. And then, you know, they give you a long explanation. Yet there are other passages in Scripture that clearly teach the opposite. Right. Um, they always, they, they go to the obscure passages. Uh, they prefer the obscure passages because they can twist them instead of right. the clear passages because you can't. That's, and, and what does this paragraph say that, we should be doing with interpretation of scripture. It's the exact opposite, right? That obscure passages, you know, where and there are there are places that are a major challenge to see and to understand. But what do we do? We understand those in light of clearer passages that are saying the same thing, and we can see in the context they're saying the same same thing. But but we come to that understanding uh, through the clear passages of, of scripture. And you're exactly right that uh, when you, if you want to misuse, if you want to uh, mislead a people, if you want to uh, have your own power over people or whatever it might be, use Scripture to do that. But misuse Scripture, and that's exactly right. And so we need to, to know how people misuse Scripture. 
and uh, and at the same time, how do you use it? Well, exactly. Starve people, and then then they'll be good, right? If they're starved. But uh, no, you're exactly right. And I think you're joking on that. Um, so th- there was one little statement in here that we might have read uh, when uh, Nathan was reading paragraph nine. You might have just kind of skipped over. It was very important. So I'll kind of bang my foot. This is going to be on the final. Um, <laughs> uh, and that is, it's in parenthesis there, uh, which is not manifold but one. So which is, so we've got to go back and see what, what it's referring to. Uh, the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be certain clearly known. Uh, so Scripture is not manifold but one. What does the word manifold mean? Here we need interpretation. Many. Many. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not... Manifold, the full sense of Scripture, the meaning of Scripture, is not manifold but one. Uh, if you've ever sat in a, a Bible study group, let's say a, you know a small group, and you kind of the the leader says uh, you know they read passage and and let's just go around. What does this mean to you? And then they go around the table and. And, and you hear, well, to me, this means this. this. This would really help me in this area of my life. Somebody else says, yeah, I, I can see that. But no, to me, uh, it has this meaning. And they're not just applying it, but they're saying that the meaning is dependent on the individual. It has many different meanings. What this is saying is, no, it doesn't, that you can't do that uh, at all. Because when God gave us Scripture, he made it much more straightforward, didn't he? I mean, if, if it had many different meanings, you'd be able to make anything out of out of a passage that you wanted to, wouldn't you? And that's problematic, but no, he's been very specific in setting it forth. It has one meaning. Now, that's not discounting. Let me talk about one area of Scripture. Uh, there are passages in here that we can read, and I go to places in Isaiah, and, and especially a number of the prophets, where we can tell that there is a particular meaning to this people. Uh, Isaiah chapter 7, that talks about the virgin uh, being given. Uh, it, it, it seems to be talking about there is a, you know, a, a, a virgin at that time. There's a baby that uh, comes, and we read about that later in uh, Isaiah chapter 7. But then, when we get to the New Testament... Uh, points back to that passage and makes it clear, as you can tell when you read the passage, this isn't just talking about this time, but it's, it's, it's a prophecy. It's looking forward to the birth of Christ. Uh, places like that, there, if you think about it, there really aren't two meanings there. There was a, what you might call a local meaning that's here uh, for the people that, that lived during that time, but it's, it's looking forward to something that in the same way, same type of context, has meaning in the future. There's a prophecy that's being given. So that these people here can understand without being out here where we are, they can understand uh, about Christ. They can understand the, the, the things of uh, the, the future. Does that make sense? So I'm talking about prophecy mainly. That's not two different meanings. Uh, 
but what we what is emphasized here is scripture. Uh, the the full sense of scripture is not manifold; it is one. Okay, there is one meaning, and that's important. So I just wanted you know it's a little thing in, in uh, parentheses there. Um, okay, you're talking about something like a prophecy, a passage of prophecy, right? And in fact, that's what we see as you go through, as you, as you go through the Old Testament. Uh, how does the Old Testament relate to the New? Well, it's, it's often shadowy in a sense. It, it's got everything uh, there. One of the, one of the, the fathers of the church said, said it like this, that uh, in an acorn that falls from a, an oak tree, that's going to kind of you know, bury the ground and bear a new oak tree. It has everything in it that that oak tree will have, but it's, it doesn't look at all like it, uh, or it doesn't look a, a lot like it. Everything's there, but it's just not clear yet, right? And so that's really the, the Old Testament and the New. Everything's there, uh, but it's it's not clear, and that's why, we, you know, about the Gentiles being grafted in. Uh, the New Testament talks about that. This is the mystery that's been revealed. Before it was hidden, it was there. In fact, we can go to passages of Scripture where it was really, in a sense, plain and clear. Uh, scripture talks about it, but they couldn't see it. Uh, they, you know, they, they, it wasn't plain and clear to them. Yeah. So maybe uh, just to kind of say what you're saying again. But um, so in the Old Testament, you have a lot of uh, a lot of things that are. Pointing to Christ, you, you have the, the temple, the sacrifices, um, the priesthood, the king. All of that is pointing to Christ. So um, there are implications there. So like when David says, uh, you know, I will not. What is it? I will not see corruption. Uh, mm-hmm. He's talking about that God's going to protect him in the moment. But and, and so that has one meaning. He's talking about David, but because David was part of what God was using to point toward Christ, it's got, it can have other implications. Mm-hmm. And I think the statement that you made, Bill, is, is right. I mean, it's, it's not clear until later, and that's, that is the nature of prophecy, for the most part. Uh, now, some of it was given, this is, this is prophecy, and it, it's going to be fulfilled in this way, right? Is that, make, is that clear, or did you have another question out of it? Okay, okay. Okay, yeah, 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 which is, uh, is, is true. But again, it, it does, you know, there's one meaning you know, all the way through. And that, that, cha- that should affect the way that you open up and read Scripture, right? That uh, as I go to this passage, uh, there, there's one, one meaning that's not manifold. And then going back to that practical context, you know, in the Bible study, if if there are kind of people say, well, this this seems to mean this to me, and this right, seems right. to mean this to me, that the goal is not, well, let's see what meanings we can gather out of this, but the goal is, you know, we see this differently. Let's let's work through our understanding because we we know there is one meaning mm-hmm. that we're we're all striving right. toward, and I think that's also, you know, I was talking to a, a friend this week. And uh, comes from a different um, uh, background, denomination, background. Yeah. Mm-hmm. and um, but saying you know 
if we hold the scripture to be true, right. even though we have some different you know, doctrines that we, that we hold to, we're both acknowledging the word of God is true um, and we're, we desire to understand it correctly. There's one truth. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, you know, our, our backgrounds, our, our theological backgrounds, our family backgrounds, all those different things, you know, for for instance, in the issue of baptism, we see we may see those differently, mm-hmm. but um, we're we're saying there's one truth revealed in the scripture and we're working toward understanding that. Absolutely. That's that brings up a, a great point there that that others are going to see things differently at times, and it takes the right humility uh, for all of us to be able to say, I've, I've done the study. Uh, I, I've listened to those who have gone before, but I, I've, I've looked, and, and this is what I hold to be true on this. Yet, my brother, my sister over here holds it differently. It's not a, it's not, you know, core to, I hesitate to say this, but not core to salvation or something like that. Otherwise, you know, we, we do need to understand certain things just very clearly. But baptism is a good example. And so I, I'm going to love my brother. I'm going to love my sister. I'm going to say, you know, I, I, I can see. And we can have a discussion about that. But at the end of the day, it's okay that we have two different. We're, we're going to do that. Uh, we're going to have two different, uh, you know, views on that. Does that make sense? Yeah. And therefore, there should be humility in that, that I can see that you know, last year I didn't really understand this. Therefore, I know that right now I don't understand all things perfectly clear, even though I think I do. <laughs> You're exactly right. I think that that is a part of sanctification. Yet at the same time, what we do, we, we should be seeking to know and to understand uh, that's the, that's what the Lord has put put forth. Because why? Not just for the sake of understanding, right? Uh, because we need it in order to live. And, and as we're convicted uh, about the the truth of God's word, and it comes to us, then we can deal with certain sin in our life that we couldn't deal with before. Then we can walk a certain path uh, with the Lord through uh, what He brings into our lives uh, that may be difficult in a way that we couldn't before. So yeah, that's. You're well said. Um, what well, one other, just real quick thing on that. When when we say that this idea of sitting around in a Bible study and talking about you know different meanings, we said you know Scripture has one meaning. We can't do that. Uh, I, that doesn't mean, and this is where it gets a cha- to be a challenge. Doesn't mean we don't apply it in different ways. We can have one passage of Scripture that has one meaning, and uh, and it can be a- applied in Jim's life. Differently than it's going to be applied in, in, in Jackie's life, uh, uh, perhaps, or maybe, you know, uh, much of it the same way. But there are going to be differences because we have uh, different, ex, you know, areas that we need to work upon and all of that. And so it can be applied in different ways, if that makes sense. Um, but the meaning is not different. And that's the key uh, to to kind of uh, make sure we understand uh, one one last uh, chapter there, and that is chapter ten. It's very short, uh, and again, it's not the rule of interpretation. You could say 
Supreme Judge or something like that as the heading there. But uh, paragraph number 10. Uh, Steve, you want to read that verse? The Supreme Judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined, and whose sentences we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scriptures. This is one of those statements at the end of a very important section on Scripture it's really a summary statement in a sense. Uh, it's kind of hammering home what the you know, pastors, theologians uh, that, that uh, wrote this wanted to bring home, and I think uh, very helpfully so. Uh, you could go back to chapter 4, I'm sorry, uh, uh, paragraph 4 that talked about the authority of Scripture, because really that's what this is, is talking about. But, but what is that ultimate authority, what is that supreme judge, finally, that this gives to us? What is it? What? The Holy Spirit. Okay, that's, that's exactly right. It can be none, no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scripture. And that's what we saw in, in a number of places before. That's, that's what must be authoritative to us. What's not here? What, what what does it say? Well, in fact, it lists a number of them there. But but private spirits. Yeah, yeah. That, that just you know, I you know I, I heard this voice and it told me this. Uh, right. And and so you know doctrines of men. So that's that's the key. I mean, what they're really talking about? It's talking about the church. I mean, the the that. The church or this group of, of people, of men coming down and saying, uh, you know, this is the way you must understand this. And really, our, our, our rule is that our consciences can't be bound by anything other than this itself, the Holy Spirit speaking through Scripture. And so if someone is convicted by their conscience that... Uh, and I could give examples from over the past couple of years, but uh, that that they should or shouldn't do based on Scripture, do some. They're convicted of it. Then what I'd ask is, we'll, we'll show this show this in Scripture, and, and let's. It, but if you're convicted by Scripture itself, then your conscience should be your guide. Now, if it's clear that that they're they're wrong, they're interpreting things wrongly then we need to fix that. But if it's something that's not just clearly spoken in Scripture and, and they have that conviction, then that's what they, they must follow. It's not, it's not me or someone else saying no uh, when it's not spoken in Scripture. Uh, you know, don't ever drink. Does the Word say that? The answer is no. It doesn't say never drink alcohol. Period. What? That's exactly right. I was I was gonna go there, Sarah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Probably on on that topic, right? <laughs> 
Sounds like Garth. <laughs> because that's exactly right. We have to have family discussions when we came back from Yeah, yeah. Because, and, and that was why I used that example. Because there are those who say, do not. Uh, but yet it doesn't say that in Scripture. So what is the authority? Well, it's, it's what we just read. And that, that's their point there. And that's, and, you, you know, that gives us that freedom from man and freedom to obey the Lord. Now, where's the problem? That our own hearts are sinful and our own hearts are going to want to tend to, and that's why we have the protections that are there. That's why we have, you know, what we're doing right here, um, to help us to understand, interpret scripture in the right way, to understand it. Uh, but ultimately that's why each of us should be in, in God's Word on a regular basis. Because it's not, uh, you know, a, a person, a human that is just standing up. In fact, that's, that's what we do when we preach, right? What do we preach from? We preach from this, and therefore it's the Holy Spirit speaking through God's Word. Yes, using fallible men, and therefore uh, we, we need to have that checked uh, as well. Um, but does that make sense? Yeah, Jim. Yeah, one of the beauties of the Westminster Confession in how is it is able to take very somewhat complex thoughts mm-hmm. and write them in a very simple statement. And this section 10 of of this first chapter is a great summary statement of that. It's a great example of how the divines were able to write down here in in a simple sentence, you know, what is being recapped in this entire, uh, in this entire chapter. You know, it reminds me of what I would call an elevator speech. You know, I used to live in New York, and I would take an elevator every day to go to my office. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a certain behavior that you, know, that you should have when you're inside an elevator with some people. And if you do engage in a speech, it has to be a speech that cannot be longer than a couple of minutes. You can't walk out the door and grab onto them and keep on going, right? And, and, and this section 10 reminds me yeah. of an elevator speech about Scripture. Right, right. And it concise and says what needs to be said there as well. Uh, yeah, well said. And I think we do find that, uh, yeah, I know we do find that with the confession. That's why it's, it, it, it is so helpful to us. Now, I will remind you, and I haven't been uh, our time's up now and I, I i haven't been going to this time i will next time but to a lot of the uh the you know if you want to call them cross references that or, or uh, proof texts that we've got uh in in the confession in in your books you, you'll notice uh right there under 10 it just has one letter so it's it, the the text apply to that whole paragraph but matthew 22 29 and 31, Acts 28, 25. Actually, that's a short one, isn't it? So we can go there. So we'll go to Acts. <laughs> we'll go to Acts uh, 28, 25, last chapter of the book of Acts, and uh, verse 25. Uh, and and disagreeing. So this is this is that place where where Paul is. He's it's the end of uh, of the book of Acts. Uh, he's there um, in uh, in Rome, 
and uh, he's been trying to speak in, in just, you know, elevator uh, uh, speeches, I guess, but, uh, you know, and uh, convince them about the truths of Scripture. Uh, and some were convinced by what he said. Others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. Here's what made them uh, depart. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet. Why do you think that's given as a cross-reference? Because what is, what is Paul doing? He's saying the Holy Spirit was right when he spoke through Scripture and said this. And therefore, I can speak this to you and speak it authoritatively. Because it's the Holy Spirit speaking through Scripture. And it is authoritative. And of course, they didn't like what they heard, as we often don't like what we hear. Uh, but they decided to leave, to depart. But if you read that paragraph and you know what it's saying out of Isaiah, you'll understand why they, uh, they departed. But no matter whether we like it or not, uh, you know, God's Word is authoritative to us uh, when it's the Holy Spirit speaking through Scripture. And so that's important. Uh, okay, well, let's uh, go ahead and, and close. Steve, would you mind closing us in prayer? Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this time that we've had and, and to learn more about the Westminster Confession, to learn more, to grow in your word, Lord. As we go, go on to our service today, we just pray that you'd be with us. Be with David as he brings your message. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.